Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. In my last episode, I focused on my favorite stage direction in Shakespeare, Exit, Pursued by a Bear. Today, I'm interested in a passage from Shakespeare in which a stage direction is missing. The play is Antony and Cleopatra, and the missing stage direction, I'm sure, would be quite simple. They kiss. But though modern editions of Shakespeare's plays usually add stage directions where needed, and every edition of Antony and Cleopatra adds a stage direction where one clearly belongs, I've never come across an edition that agrees with me. Rather, they go with a stage direction I think quite lame. They embrace. After reading the passage with my choice included, I'll talk about why I've made this choice and why it matters. But before I read the passage, let me set the scene and explain a few unfamiliar words. Antony and Cleopatra tells the story of the two title characters, the Roman general Mark Antony and Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, both their love affair and their deaths. Shakespeare deviates from the historical record when doing so furthers his poetic design, and it should be remembered always that we read Shakespeare as a poet rather than as an historian, even when he is dealing with historical characters and events. When the play opens, I'll be reading from the beginning of scene one, Antony is in Egypt carrying on an affair with Cleopatra, though he is married to a woman named Fulvia, who is back in Rome. Antony is also in a struggle for power with Octavius Caesar, twenty years Antony's junior, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who is now dead. Throughout the play, Octavius is simply called Caesar. First on the stage are two of Antony's underlings, Demetrius and Philo. Philo is complaining to Demetrius about the change that has come over Antony since taking up his affair with Cleopatra. Once a great soldier, Antony is now the fool of a strumpet, a lascivious woman. Philo twice speaks of Cleopatra as being Egyptian, once calling her a gypsy, which in Shakespeare's day meant a native of Egypt, and once referring to Cleopatra's tawny skin, that is, skin with the complexion of an Egyptian. In fact, Cleopatra was Greek rather than Egyptian, but Shakespeare wishes to show Antony torn between Rome, embodied by Caesar, and Egypt, embodied by Cleopatra, and so makes even Cleopatra's body Egyptian. As Philo is complaining to Demetrius about Antony's loss of masculinity, Antony and Cleopatra enter with her large posse. The two are playfully bantering about Antony's love for Cleopatra. When Cleopatra demands that Antony tell her how much he loves her, he replies that his love is unlimited. When Cleopatra responds that she can set the bourne or boundary of how much she can be loved, Antony declares that to do so, 
shall need to find a new heaven and new earth large enough to encompass his love. Shakespeare here borrows the language of the Bible, specifically the book of Revelation, for a decidedly non-biblical purpose. At this moment, a messenger enters, saying he has news from Rome. Antony is irritated and tells the messenger to be brief, but Cleopatra objects, saying the message might be important. It might come from Fulvia or from Caesar, commanding Antony to return to Rome. Cleopatra is here still playfully poking at Antony, suggesting he is under the command of others. Antony rejects this, saying in effect that Rome can go to hell. He's staying in Egypt. What do kingdoms matter? What does the mundane world matter? The nobleness of life isn't to be found in these things, but rather in love, specifically in sexual love. But he doesn't say this, but rather shows it. The nobleness of life is found in doing thus, he says, demonstrating rather than saying. But there is no stage direction to explain what thus is. As I've said, most editors say it's an embrace. I'm sure it's a kiss. Whatever it is, and that's what I'll return to after I read the passage, Antony finishes by saying not only do he and Cleopatra do it, but that he will have the whole world know it. Let's listen with my stage direction added. Antony and Cleopatra, Act 1, Scene 1. Enter Demetrius and Philo. Philo. Nay, but this dotage of our generals o'erflows the measure those his goodly eyes that o'er the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars, now bend, now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. His captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights hath burst the buckles of his breast, renigs all temper and is become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. Flourish. Enter Antony, Cleopatra, her ladies, the train, with eunuchs fanning her. Philo continues. Look where they come. Take but good note, and you shall see him, the triple pillar of the world, transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. Cleopatra. If it be love indeed, tell me how much. Antony. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Cleopatra, I'll set a bourne how far to be beloved. Antony, then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. Enter a messenger. Messenger, news, my good lord, from Rome. Antony, grates me the sum. Cleopatra, Nay, hear him, Antony. Fulvia, perchance, is angry. Or who knows of the scarce-bearded Caesar have not sent his powerful mandate to you. Do this or this. Take in that kingdom and enfranchise that. Perform it, or else we damn thee. 
Antony. How, my love? Cleopatra. Perchance? Nay, and most like. You must not stay here longer. Your dismission is come from Caesar. Therefore, hear it, Antony. Where's Fulvia's process? Caesar's, I would say. Both? Call in the messengers. As I am Egypt's queen, thou blushest, Antony, and that blood of thine is Caesar's homager, else so thy cheek pays shame when shill-tongued Fulvia scolds. The messengers. Antony. Let Rome and Tiber melt, and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall. Here is my space. Kingdoms are clay. Our dungy earth alike feeds beast as man. The nobleness of life is to do thus. They kiss. When such a mutual pair and such a twain can do it, in which I bind on pain of punishment the world to wheat, we stand up peerless. We stand up peerless. When we, the great Antony and the beautiful Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, kiss, Antony declares, they have no equal in the world. They stand up peerless. So Antony believes. Philo, we can be certain, does not. Nor most likely do the other Romans who serve under him. But does Shakespeare think Antony and Cleopatra stand up peerless when they kiss? I think he does, though not every scholar agrees, nor every teacher or every stage director. Many share the negative opinion of Philo and the others in the play, as well as the negative opinions of those ancient writers upon whom Shakespeare has drawn for the main events of his play and even some of the dialogue. For these, Antony's tragedy is that he forsakes his honor, his very manhood, for the sake of what Philo calls a strumpet. But Shakespeare's play doesn't present this conventional view. For one thing, Antony and Cleopatra isn't just the tragedy of Antony, but the tragedy of both Antony and Cleopatra. What's more, Antony dies at the end of Act 4, Cleopatra not until the end of Act 5, the conclusion of the play. It is implausible to think that the entire fifth act is anticlimax. No, the play is more Cleopatra's tragedy than Antony's, and this couldn't be the case if Cleopatra is merely a strumpet, a lascivious woman, it can only be Cleopatra's tragedy if what Antony says is true, that something peerless is destroyed in the deaths of Cleopatra and her lover. But what is it that is destroyed? Antony and Cleopatra is a contest between Rome and Egypt, with Antony caught between. Cleopatra throughout the play is even called Egypt, as when Antony says to her as he is dying, I am dying, Egypt, dying. And the tragedy of the play is that not only does Antony die, Egypt itself, embodied by Cleopatra, dies. Rome is the victor. We must understand this not as the historian understands it, but as the poet understands it.
Egypt is play, pleasure, passion, love, and yes, sex. That's what Antony signifies when he kisses Cleopatra before all the world. And not, I'm sure, a peck on the lips, but a deep, protracted sexual kiss, not some hug. In other words, Egypt is life. Rome, on the other hand, is work, duty, control, the denial of pleasure. It certainly isn't sex. Those around Antony in the play consider the Antony of Rome manly and the Antony of Egypt unmanly. Shakespeare himself suggests this repeatedly. But while the men in the play think so with disapproval, Shakespeare doesn't disapprove. Masculinity, Rome, in Antony and Cleopatra, is the denial of life. Cleopatra, not despite her playfulness and her sexuality, but because of these, is life. The tragedy of Antony and Cleopatra is Cleopatra's recognition that carried to Rome as Caesar's prize, she will be a mockery of herself, and that to preserve who she is, what she is, life itself, she must escape Caesar, she must clasp the poison asp to her breast, and die. Antony and Cleopatra is Shakespeare's greatest tragedy, in which death itself becomes the affirmation of life. We mustn't take from this, though, any thought of imitating Cleopatra. Rather, if we sympathize with Cleopatra, as Shakespeare asks us to, we must change Rome. We can begin by granting that the act that gives life nobility isn't a tidy embrace, but a sexual kiss. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.